You will never again see a tweet from President Trump. The social media giant cited the risk of further incitement of violence. It certainly isn't, uh, isn't censorship. It's a business deciding they don't want to uh, be involved. How much of a violation is this of free speech? Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we don't cover the news, we cover the way the news is covered. Here are the media stories we're looking at this week. Twitter leaves Donald Trump in the dark, and the fallout from this story is global. Will leaders learn to watch their words? Ugandans vote in a presidential election in the midst of an internet blackout imposed by their government. Alarm phone. Hello, my friend. This is Alarm Phone. The hotline Let's in see. the Mediterranean that refugees are using to get their stories out. And some anti-Baklava blowback. Beirut-style. Messaging aimed at patriarchal societies across the Middle East. It took four years, tens of thousands of posts, and a lot of ugliness for Twitter to finally shut down President Donald Trump's account. January 8th, 2021, will go down as the day that Trump was banned from his social media platform of choice. Other tech giants then followed suit, suspending Trump's accounts. Difficult though it may be for the president to consider, this story is actually bigger than him. It's what journalists call a news peg, a development that's part of a larger debate on what some are calling the question of our time. Who, if anyone, should act as the arbiters of free speech online? Should it be governments or tech companies? And how much did timing and politics have to do with the interventions by those platforms? What with the coming changing of the guard in Washington? Also watching this story, public figures the world over, heads of government included, wondering who's next. Our starting point this week is a place that no longer exists, Donald Trump's Twitter account. 57,000 tweets later, President Donald Trump's Twitter account has mercifully gone dark. His Facebook account is suspended until he has departed the White House, perhaps longer. The riots on Capitol Hill forced the two companies to finally do what has long been demanded of them and what they had long resisted, silencing the President of the United States. The justification offered referred to the risk of further incitement and touched on company policies and principles. There was no mention of the timing, the fact that Trump already has one foot out the White House door, that the platforms no longer have reason to fear him. I think that it has a lot to do with it, honestly. Um, there have been a number of civil rights groups and other organizations calling on these platforms to do something about Trump for a long time. Um, Twitter did act sooner, of course, by limiting the misinformation that he was perpetuating on his account. But Facebook was quite cynical in their take uh, to wait this long. But it's a complicated question because, you know, he had been breaking their rules for quite some time, but they felt that a public figure should be heard by the public. And so the tipping point obviously was when his calls for incitements to violence, which he'd made before, actually resulted in, you know, significant violence. And we don't know how much of that decision was also just politically expedient, given that there was a new administration coming in. 
ha sido completamente cerrada. Donald Trump, banni de Twitter, suspendu de Facebook, est sur les réseaux sociaux de, de faire le ménage. The track record of social media platforms, the behavioral terms and conditions they impose on users, is a global story, marred by inconsistencies and double standards. Political leaders like Trump, Brazil's Jair Bolsonaro, and Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines have long gotten away with posts that incite or misinform, behavior that would get ordinary Twitter or Facebook users banned. The platforms argue that public figures, given their importance and huge followings, are entitled to more leeway. And when Facebook has intervened and blocked accounts, it's done so in smaller countries, smaller markets, as it did with the government in Myanmar in 2018 for advocating genocide against Rohingyas. The bigger the market, the more reluctant big tech platforms are to intervene. Take India, for example. The uh, world leader with the largest social media presence, the most Facebook followers in the entire world is Narendra Modi of India. Narendra Modi has a much higher body count than Donald Trump. He has overseen the violent, oppression of Muslim citizens of India. Human rights organizations have uh, cited him for these violations for decades. And there is no chance that Facebook is going to limit his expressions. He's too important to Facebook. India is too important to Facebook. India is Facebook's largest market. India is the site of Facebook's fastest growth. There are plenty of other leaders out there using these platforms to spread misinformation. We've seen it from Modi's BJP party. We've seen it from uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil. But all of these platforms, and Facebook in particular, tend to pay much more attention and give much more credence to issues in the U.S. They also pay much more attention to what U.S. experts are saying than people around the world who've been crying for help. And there are still countries where these platforms are not paying any attention at all or may not even have individuals um, moderating content in the very languages uh, that are spoken it shows the arbitrary nature of this. So this is really due to the decisions, at least on Facebook, of one man, Mark Zuckerberg, right? People inside say that he makes these important calls. And you have to imagine that it has something to do with how the company as a business wants to operate and be perceived in those countries. You can't help but notice that it's different in different places and wonder what are the political calculations that went into those decisions. The debate over who gets kicked off social media platforms and who gets to stay goes beyond Facebook and Twitter to apps like Parler and Gab. Both market themselves as free speech networks and are loaded with hate speech and conspiracy theories. Since November's election, members of Trump's base had been flocking to Parler. At times, it was the number one download at the Apple App Store. After Twitter canned Trump's account, the big tech players, including some of the Internet's core infrastructure companies, also acted against Parler. Both Apple and Google Play dumped the app from their stores. Then Parler had its space on the web pulled out from under it. The app's host provider, the company that provides it a home on the Internet, Amazon Web Services, dropped it as a client. In the space of three days, Parler went from being more popular than ever to just disappearing. There are very few companies more powerful than Amazon taking rather extreme measures that have pretty significant implications on who gets to say what. And yet, 
it may be the best we can hope for because there seems to be no other way to stop this very corrosive, very destructive conspiracy and expression that's been going on on the extreme right around the world. These companies are the private backbone of the internet. And like all the issues with the internet, they, they aren't regulated, right? So they can make whatever decisions they want. And you know, you may or may not agree with whether the, they should have kicked off Parler, but you could also question whether they should have the right to just make arbitrary decisions about who has access to the internet. Iranians, um, because of U.S. sanctions, are barred from using Amazon Web Services, as well as a whole range of other services, um, including, you know, certain apps in the Google Play Store, etc. And so we can see from that example just how vital these platforms are to expression. And so I think that speaks to just how core this uh, layer of the internet is to the world. Big tech has made a terrible mistake. Looming over the deplatforming story is the contextual, often ideological question of who gets to make the rules. Should host services and social media platforms, indispensable sources of information for billions of people, be the ultimate arbiters of what gets seen? They haven't exactly excelled at the job. Another more political question. Will the incoming administration in Washington be any more open to regulating big tech companies than the Trump administration was? Regulatory efforts have been made at the European Union and by other governments that the Americans so far have turned away. There's really only one country that has the power to regulate these tech companies, which is the U.S., because they're based here. You know, other countries have tried, EU in particular, but most of those have been somewhat curtailed. And sometimes the companies just don't comply. And so until the U.S. takes strong action, I don't know whether there will be anything that happens um, to curtail their power. The European Union can expect cooperation, partnership from the Biden administration on any number of important issues. But in terms of how American tech companies are treated, I would expect the Biden administration to defend American tech companies to the fullest. We have to remember that many of these companies and many of the top leaders of these companies have supported Democratic candidates and Democratic administrations. I don't see that the United States is gonna change its approach to these tech companies in any serious way. As the home of Silicon Valley, the U.S. stands alone, the world's only information superpower. Washington's decisions, including the ones it has chosen to leave to big tech companies, allowing them to police themselves, are affecting the discourse of billions. It's a debate that has the world talking about America taking a hands-off approach at a high-stakes moment to a form of technology that can reflect societal behavior and, as we have come to learn, actually change it. It is the rarest of news stories, one whose importance is difficult to overstate. The question of whether corporations should have this much power over our speech is really the question of our time. It really speaks to a fundamental issue with the internet, which is that it was built as a private network, and yet it is essentially a utility. This is how we decided to build it. That's just the fact of the internet. We've created a stupid system, blindly, without any real planning. We've done so without any deep thought, and this is what we're stuck with. 
Moving now to East Africa, Ugandans voted in a presidential election this past Thursday, but they had to go without social media, even the internet, as they went to the polls. Minakshi Robbie has been keeping track of developments there. Mina, we don't have the results of this election yet, but what can you tell us about these restrictions? Well, Richard, this has been one of Uganda's most fiercely contested elections since President Yoweri Museveni took office nearly 35 years ago, and he seemed determined not to let the media get in the way of yet another term. Now, on the eve of Thursday's vote, Uganda's communications regulator sent out an order to telecoms companies telling them to cut off access to the internet across the country until further notice. This order came on the back of another one issued just the previous day to block access to social media websites and online messaging platforms like WhatsApp, Twitter and Facebook. Facebook had taken down the accounts of some government officials and members of Museveni's NRM party, allegedly saying that they were using fake accounts to boost their outreach. And do Ugandans have a feel on how this may have affected the election, the other candidates involved? It most certainly had an impact on the information Ugandans were able to access about their presidential candidates. There were 11 in total, and the leading opposition candidate was a musician, uh, the reggae star turned member of parliament, Robert Chigilani, also known as Bobby Wine. Now, like most opposition candidates, the coverage he received in mainstream media was severely limited. The government puts a lot of pressure on news outlets there. And so social media was vital for his campaign. Bobby Wine was arrested a number of times, his campaign came under attack, and the authorities have used lethal force against protesters. Uganda feels like a country at the crossroads. What's at stake here for freedom of the press? Bobby Wine talks a good game about the importance of democratic norms and institutions. He's less clear, however, about actual policy, even about freedom of the press. When it comes to Yoweri Museveni, journalists know what they're up against. The NGO Reporters Without Borders has documented 18 physical assaults that took place against journalists since November and eight arbitrary arrests. If Museveni wins, as observers predict, it's unlikely he's going to change a formula that's helped him cling to power for more than three decades now. Okay, thanks, Mina. In 2015, at the height of Europe's refugee influx, more than a million migrants tried to get into the continent by sea. The global media were positioned around the Mediterranean, filing stories from various borders, sometimes from boats. With the number of arrivals dropping, most of the reporters have moved on, so the story has faded from view. Even though tens of thousands of migrants attempted the trip in 2020, more than a thousand of them died trying. One NGO that refuses to let this story go is Alarm Phone. The organization was set up in 2014 as an emergency hotline staffed by volunteers to aid refugees in distress. Not by sending boats, but by reporting on the situation at sea and pressuring the relevant authorities to come to the rescue. But some of the governments Alarm Phone is dealing with oversee the border control forces that can be part of the problem. The Listening Post's Johanna Hoos now on Alarm Phone and its efforts to shine a light on what is still happening on Europe's borders. Hello, my friend. This is Alarm Phone. Yes, hold, hold on, hold on. You're at sea. You're in trouble. Can you hear me? Okay, good. A sympathetic voice yeah. on the other so, uh, end of the line. One who always picks up the phone, 24-7. Okay, so you're, you're in a boat. Okay, I'm good. My friend, I need you to calm. My friend, calm down, calm down. Okay, okay. I'm going to need your position. Can, can you get me your GPS position? 
An emergency hotline that doesn't just offer a lifeline, but that documents, boat by boat, the realities of what happens at the world's deadliest sea crossing. Your engine stopped. Okay, and there's water, there's water coming into the boat. People are being left, were being, still are left to drown in the Mediterranean because of the indifference of the European authorities. Uh, and so by being a hotline, an extra actor in the Mediterranean on people's side, you're doing something that's practically useful to people. One of the functions of the alarm phone is precisely to have a vision of the world where black lives matter, right? where everybody counts, where what's happening in the Mediterranean is not invisible. It is very difficult indeed to report from, from the sea. It's not only the terrain and geography that makes it uh, hard, but increasingly so states themselves who are trying to obstruct such investigations. And that's why it's the role of NGOs, of Alarm Phone and others, it's crucial. They have a crucial role to play to tell the story of refugees and help establish patterns, help establish what is really going on. Very often they're the only witness, the only eyes over the Mediterranean and the GNC. What really goes on at sea is something some European governments want to stay at sea. The influx in 2015 of more than a million migrants marked the height of Europe's refugee crisis. It affected politics and fanned populist movements across the European Union. Tougher, often less humane border policies were the result. Their supporters argue that those policies have worked, sent a message. The number of attempted crossings has dropped by about 90% over the last five years. Still, around 90,000 people tried it in 2020. Greece, which has borne the brunt of the migrant crisis, has taken a particularly uncompromising stance on refugees. Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis and his right-wing New Democracy Party came to power in 2019. NGOs, media and human rights organizations have since accused the Greek Coast Guard of attacking migrants, pushing their boats and dinghies back out to sea. That practice is called pushback, and under international law, it's illegal. But when we raised that fact with the Greek Minister of Migration, he dodged the question and tried to turn our attention onto neighboring Turkey instead. Now let me be clear, it is the Turkish Coast Guard that needs to prevent people leaving Turkish soil, reaching the Greek territorial waters. And let's also be clear with something else. Turkey is a safe country, and people fleeing Turkey are not fleeing a war zone. And therefore, it cannot be an excuse to allow people to go into unseaworthy dinghies, driven by people with no experience at sea, and these people, sometimes with the support of the Turkish Coast Guard, end up crossing illegally, and some of them, unfortunately, we see loss of life in the Aegean. The Minister of Migration avoided the issue of pushback and his government's involvement in it, which is where Alarm Phone comes in. What can you see? You, you can see the shore. Yeah, yeah, you're really, you're really near to Lesbos. You're, you're, you're right there. The information volunteers like Jacob Bergson collect over the phone is passed on to news outlets that no longer devote the resources to the refugee story they once did. How many are on the boat? Okay. 23. How many women? 12. Are there, are there any children? Some major media players have grown reliant, at least partly, on Alarm Phone for their own reporting. 
outlets like the New York Times and Germany's Der Spiegel. Over the past months, we have published a series of very well-documented reports concerning pushbacks and violence and violations of human rights. Uh, I believe very little of this, uh, or maybe none of this, would be uh, possible to document, to produce, if it weren't for uh, organizations, including Alarm Phone. Their role is to collect raw evidence uh, and testimonies from, from migrants. Our role as media gatekeepers is to uh, collaborate with them, establish the veracity of what they say, and then publish. The documentation is a necessity. When you see people on the move as people, then of course you document it. Of course you, 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 you write their, their tragedy. It's, it's, um, it's the bare minimum that you can do. And why do we collect and document all this information? So that when this racist system is over, no one can say, we didn't know. But the kind of work these activists are doing has landed them in trouble with the law. This past June, the Greek police launched a criminal investigation into Alarm Phone and several other NGOs, organizations like Jazur and Aegean Boat Reports. The charges? Espionage, revealing state secrets, joining criminal organizations and facilitating the illegal entry of migrants into Europe. The prosecution is not holding back. It tapped the aid workers' phones, put them under surveillance, and it even went as far as recruiting undercover migrants, putting them back on boats bound for Greece, all in an effort to prove the NGO's involvement in crimes at sea. To date, not a single person has been called in for questioning, and the evidence just doesn't seem to stack up. We asked Notis Mitaraki if this case against the NGOs is more about silencing those exposing government wrongdoing than it is about fighting crime. The government doesn't press charges. It is the judicial and the police that uh, investigate crimes. We're not against any NGOs. The villains here are the smugglers. And anyone cooperating with the smugglers, I haven't named specifically any NGOs, but there was a number of testimonies from asylum seekers that themselves identified the names of organizations that either helped them to fly to Turkey or would help them in the journey from the Turkish coast to Greece. This is deemed as a crime and it is the police and the courts that will decide. I find it very, very, very hard to believe that this will ever end up in a guilty sentence based at least on what I have seen in the police file. But I don't think the Greek government or authorities' purpose is a conviction down the road. It is to say that people who get in our way, these people uh, need to, to learn their lesson, uh, to learn their place, and also to uh, preemptively discredit their reporting, uh, because any future reporting that is based on alarm phone data would be much easier for the Greek government to dismiss uh, uh, as uh, propaganda by uh, NGOs who are already under criminal investigation. When you are on the field and reporting on this kind of violations, abuses, there's always going to be uh, pressure. Abusers will never want to be under scrutiny. There is no doubt that allegations of smuggling must be investigated thoroughly but one must make a distinction between those who profit from misery and those who are there to help. States have a duty to protect human rights defenders and not prosecute them. I'm going to call the Greek Coast Guard and hopefully they're going to, they're going to come. According to Alarm Phone, 
The real crimes aren't the ones the Greek authorities are investigating. It's the ones the state is committing. Try and keep getting that water out of the boat and keep, keep everybody calm, keep calm, okay? Despite the Greek government's attempts to intimidate, alarm phone is still there. At the receiving end of phone calls that may be the start of a refugee's new life or the last call they ever make. So that no one, journalists and politicians included, can ever say we did not know. Okay, my friend, I'll call you in 10 minutes. Okay, thank you. Speak, speak soon. Bye. And finally, in patriarchal societies, in other words, most of them, there are terms that men have for women that are demeaning. In Lebanon, one of those words is baklava, the name of the Middle Eastern dessert. Beyond the stereotypes involved that women are soft and sweet, it's just insulting. Still, it's a favorite of catcallers. One Lebanese artist, Remy Akel, has co-opted the term for a video. It's a message from Lebanon's women to its men about sexual harassment and gender-based violence. The video is part of a hashtag campaign, Safety for Safekeepers, organized by a Lebanese NGO, Abad, aimed at protecting women in the Middle East. Since going up on Instagram last month, this video has had almost 4 million views. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post. في شوارعنا اللبنانية العربية ونظامنا الأبوي المرأة تسمى بال بقلاوة والبقلاوة هي نوع حلو عربي كيف يحدث الأمر؟ تمر الفتاة أم البنت أم المرأة لأنه في فرق بيناتهم بجانب السيارة التي يقودها شاب فيقول لها شو؟ البقلاوة صار إلها إجيان وبتمشي؟ بلا طول سيرة البقلاوة التي تتحدث عنها والتي تحلي حياتك تخاف منك ليلا نهارا صباحا مساء مشيا في شارع الحي أم مدخل البناية لأنك خطر البقلاوة التي تتحدث عنها والتي تحبك تتفاداك لأنك خطر أنا البقلاوة التي تتحدث عنها أعطيك وأعطيك وماذا تفعل تأخذ حتى بالقوة أحميك لجسمي وماذا تفعل؟ بتفتش على جسمه خلصك بروحي من خيالك وماذا تفعل؟ لحقنا مثل خيالي ما بدي منك شيء ولا شيء بدي بس أعطيك تشوفني تقشعني تحس تبدلني